Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The January 6th committee today considering some of its most consequential matters yet. The lead starts right now. 519 days in existence, more than 1,000 interviews, and now the January 6th committee weighs its final act. Coming up, I'm going to speak with a member of the committee about whether they're going to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department of Donald Trump. And first, dangerous letter bombs, now blood-soaked packages sent to a series of embassies, the disturbing content inside, and who in the world might be responsible Plus, police in Idaho now say they have new information about the crime scene where four college students were stabbed to death. So, what is it? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead and the sprint to the finish for the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol insurrection. Members of the panel meeting today as their deadline fast approaches to share their findings with the public, but the committee is also weighing whether or not to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department, including a referral of former President Donald Trump, for their actions around the deadly riot. And as the committee plans its final steps, Donald Trump is proving that he has apparently learned absolutely nothing from that horrific day. Speaking last night at an event in support of the jailed Capitol insurrectionists, where, among other things, Mr. Trump said this. Patriot freedom is what it's about. And that's not happening in our country. People have been treated unconstitutionally, in my opinion, and very, very unfairly. And we're going to get to the bottom of it. He has, of course, also promised to pardon all of the rioters. And as The New York Times' Peter Baker writes today, quote, Trump once again made clear exactly where he stands in the conflict between the American justice system and the mob that ransacked the Capitol to stop the peaceful transfer of power nearly two years ago. He stands with the mob, unquote. And one might note, all while standing under a photo of him with North Korea's Kim Jong-un, an authoritarian leader who demands complete loyalty and rules through violence. Kim Jong-un, I mean. CNN's Sarah Murray starts off our coverage from Capitol Hill with a closer look at everything left for the January 6th committee to do before its final deadline. Is requested. The clerk will call the roll. Running up against an end-of-year deadline? We're close to the putting down the pen and going to print. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol convening privately today to weigh its final moves and discuss its final report. If we don't make a recommendation, and this is not relative to Mr. Trump or any other person, it doesn't mean necessarily that we don't think they're, that they shouldn't uh, investigate, but we want to make sure that we are on on firm ground if we make any recommendations over to DOJ. The committee is still weighing what to do about criminal referrals. 
The panel also discussing how to present evidence of possible obstruction, perjury, and witness tampering in its final report, and deciding whether to try to hold accountable the five GOP lawmakers, including House Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Congressman Jim Jordan, for refusing to comply with committee subpoenas. I've got a message that I need you to take to your heart and take back home, and along the way, stop at the Capitol. The eyes have it. Committee Chair Benny Thompson telling reporters there are three options. Refer the lawmakers to the Ethics Committee, hold them in contempt of Congress, or, quote, do nothing. The committee also vowing to make interviews with more than a thousand witnesses and volumes of other evidence available to the public. Uh, we're also going to be releasing the evidence, uh, which may be the most important thing. Uh, the voluminous transcripts, the documents and emails. Uh, we want to make sure that that's put before the American people. As McCarthy still scrambling to secure the votes to become Speaker in the next Congress. I'll take it to Speaker's fight to the floor. Warns the January 6th committee to preserve all of its records and transcripts. They've been pretty clear that they'd like to undermine the work that we've done, but we're going to prevent that. <clears throat> we're going to release all the information we've collected so it cannot be selectively edited and spun. Now, Jake, as we have talked to members over the last couple of days, they know this is crunch time. They're talking about needing to get their final report to the printer and when they can get it to the public. But, of course, the big question still lingering out there, still unanswered, is what they are going to do about these criminal referrals. All right, Sarah Murray on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, a member of the January 6th committee. You heard her a little bit there in Sarah's piece. So, Congresswoman, what did the committee discuss today and did you discuss possible criminal referrals. Actually, we had a great meeting today. It went on for multiple hours, and we made a terrific uh, progress in uh, finalizing uh, the material. We'll be releasing reports and addenda and the like. Um, we haven't finished the discussion of any potential consequences, including referrals yet, uh, but we will be working on that in the coming days and expect to conclude that very soon. When you say very soon, uh, obviously the clock's ticking because the moment Kevin McCarthy becomes right. speaker, your committee will be dissolved, whether you want to or not. Um, do you mean like in the next week or two before Christmas? Yeah, yeah. No, the next week or two. And by the way, Jake, we've always known that the life of the committee was just this Congress. Special select committees are established for a single Congress, which ends on January 2nd. We've always known that, and uh, the fact that uh, the Republicans have a narrow majority doesn't change that. That's always been the case. You're a trained attorney. Knowing what you know now, after your committee has sp uh, spoken to more than a 1,000 witnesses, um, do you believe that Donald Trump, you personally, do you believe Donald Trump commi uh, committed a prosecutable crime? Well, I, the Department of Justice has to weigh the evidentiary standard. But as Judge Carter said in uh, San Diego, uh, it's clear that uh, he did commit a, a criminal offense. Whether the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt uh, can be met in a trial is something the DOJ has to decide. It's something I can't decide, but clearly he did run afoul of the law, according to the judge, and I think we can see that from the evidence we've compiled. As you know, there was a, a story in the Washington Post in which uh, people were complaining uh, about um, some of the decisions being made uh, in the committee. There's obviously a disagreement 
about what to include in this final report on CNN yesterday. You said you wanted to make sure that the report is, quote, actually tethered to the facts we found, not going off on tangents or just opinions that we can't tie into the facts. Is that the, the major issue being debated right now within the committee? And, and would you say, and I'm just hypothesizing, would you say that the lawyers on the committee, such as you and, and maybe Congresswoman Cheney, uh, have different views, divergent views than those who are not attorneys? I think there's unanimity among the members of the committee that the uh, report and the material we, we write and release needs to be tethered to the facts. And uh, we made great progress this morning going through each of the various uh, proposed material by the staff. Some honestly fall far short of that. They really, there's not, none of the footnotes relate to the, the evidence that we have compiled and we're all committed to making sure that whatever we produce is related to our investigation, not extraneous material. So there's no difference between the lawyers and non-lawyers, and there's no division among the members of the committee on that. Cassidy Hutchinson, the the former uh, aide to the Trump White House, she was the aide to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff. She testified that she had been told by uh, then-Deputy White House Chief of Staff, uh, Tony Arnato, as well as the Secret Service agent, Mr. Engel, uh, that... In, in Arnado's words, uh, there was a, there was something of a melee within the presidential SUV, President Trump telling them to go to Capitol Hill on January 6th and even lunging uh, at them. Uh, since Cassidy Hutchinson uh, testified that Arnado had told her that, you have now heard from, in testimony, Arnado and Engel again, uh, as well as the limo driver, the SUV driver. Uh, do you have any testimony that the story she told that she said Ornato told her, are there other people who were in that car who backed up that version of events? Well, I'll tell you this. As you know, our rules don't allow us to discuss the testimony, but very shortly we're going to release the transcripts and the videos of all of the interviews. Um, And people can, there's a divergence of view. Uh, There's additional evidence as to the lunging story. But the point is, whether or not there was a minor altercation and there are divergent, there's divergent testimony on that, it's very clear that the then president intended to go uh, to the White House. We have multiple sources to the hill, you mean. on that. That's locked. To the Hill, yes. I'm sorry, do they say the White House? He ended up at the White House, but he wanted to come to the Capitol. And uh, there was an argument we've heard from the Metropolitan Police Department about that. And that's a very serious issue, whether or not uh, how loud his voice was wanting to go to lead the mob turned what uh, was a, a political rally into something very different. And I think we played the testimony of one of the national security people in the emergency operations center that day who said something to the effect that that would turn a political rally into something else completely different, a coup attempt. Yeah. So uh, last night, Donald Trump uh, spoke at that event in support of the Capitol rioters. He, he claims that they're being treated unfairly, in his view, unconstitutionally. Uh, what's your response to that? You know, I hear that stuff and it makes me wonder, has he ever read the Constitution? I mean, where in the Constitution? What? what um, you know, some of the stuff that's being said, you know, I keep a copy of the Constitution with me at all times. And I can't imagine which section of the Constitution 
he's referring to. It's it's a mystery. January 6th, committee member, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Let's discuss with former U.S. Assistant Attorney General uh, uh, Kerry Cordero. Kerry, good to see you. Do you expect uh, that the January 6th committee is going to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department? I expect that they will make some because they have shown some uh, willingness to do that in the past. I think the big question, Jake, is uh, with respect to which people and how serious of the crime. So it can range from individuals that maybe were in contempt that did not cooperate with their investigation, ranging then to the substantive big issues of, first of all, whether or not individuals obstructed their investigation and then the actual crimes related to the uh, interference with the election. Do you think... Donald Trump, based on the evidence that we've been presented in the committee and what we've heard, do you think that Donald Trump committed a prosecutable crime? And I include the word prosecutable, prosecutable because people commit crimes all the time, but the attorneys, prosecutors don't bring them because they think I can't prove it uh, or there isn't enough evidence, but I do think the person did the crime. Do you think he, he, did, he committed a prosecutable crime? So prosecutors have an obligation to only bring a case when they think that they can actually uh, win on it. They can't just bring a case because they think maybe. So they have to have the actual evidence. And the difficult part of sitting here is I haven't seen all of the evidence that the Justice Department might have. Um, I haven't seen all of the transcripts that even the January 6th committee has in its possession with respect to witness testimony. We've only seen clips of it in terms of what the January 6th committee Committee has put forth. So to really make an informed, give you an informed answer for that, you have to be in the position to have all of the evidence. Do I think the committee potentially has information to make uh, a criminal referral on obstruction? They might. They certainly alluded to that over the course of their public hearings. Do they have the evidence on him specifically to refer on the uh, overall obstruction and conspiracy to undermine the election. I think we have to know more of what the grand jury testimony is, for example, of other individuals who have testified. So I think there's a big evidence piece um, before a prosecutor could make that decision. Do you think the uh, jury convicting Stuart Rhodes uh, and the, uh, the others, uh, the Oath Keepers that were on trial that were found guilty uh, this week of a number of charges, including seditious conspiracy, for the head of the Oath Keepers and, and his deputy, do you think that makes the January 6th committee or the Justice Department more likely to try to bring criminal charges against people who are actually in the White House or in the administration? I don't know that it necessarily ties in that way. What it shows is the Justice Department is willing to bring a hard case that has political ramifications and, and charge laws that aren't traditionally charged, like seditious conspiracy, if they think they have the evidence and if they think that they can win that case. So I think it, it shows the decision-making process that this Justice Department is willing to make. But again, it depends on what evidence they've gathered in, in several different investigations as it relates to the former president, in the overturning of the, the attempt to overturn the 2020 election, in the documents case, which is the subject of the, the Mar-a-Lago search, um, as well as on obstruction uh, issues as well. Yeah, the reason I asked is because, as you know, Seditious conspiracy is a difficult charge to get a conviction for uh, historically. It's very difficult. And, and what I don't think the January 6th committee presented in its evidence was that really key link between the former president, the people in the White House and the connection to the individuals who committed the violence yeah. on January 6th. The individuals that have that information have all refused to testify. The Roger Stones, the Steve Bannons, the Mark Meadows. Thank you so much, Kerry Cordero. Really right. appreciate it. Coming up, a vocal critic of Kevin McCarthy who insists the Republican leader will not become speaker. 
how he's now calling on GOP colleagues to make sure of that. Plus, crowds cheer when their own country lost in the World Cup. What some suspect as the Iranian regime responsible for those celebrations have turned deadly. And the toxic warnings as people try to get a close-up view of the incredible lava flow on Hawaii's big island will take you there. Stay with us. We're back with our politics lead now. Minority leader Kevin McCarthy is getting ready to fight for the speaker's gavel. It won't be easy. There will likely be 222 House Republicans. He needs 218 votes. If it is 222, ultimately, then Mr. McCarthy can only lose four Republicans. And as of now, at least five have vowed to oppose his run for speaker. If a challenger to McCarthy emerges next month, it will be the first speaker floor fight in more than a century. Let's go right to CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Manu, there's there's no way of actually knowing what's going to happen on the floor a month from now. I mean, the smart money would be on McCarthy buttoning this down. But still, what have you been hearing from Republican lawmakers? Yeah, it's a game of chicken that's happening right now. McCarthy and his allies are planning to push ahead. McCarthy believes that ultimately he will get there. He does not, he's not concerned by these threats from some of these Republican members. He's working behind the scenes to try to get those votes one by one. But some of those handful of those hardline detractors are insisting that Kevin McCarthy simply will not get 218 votes to become Speaker. And they are now calling on some Republicans who have privately voiced concerns about McCarthy to become public because they say that will isolate McCarthy and force him to drop out. Yes, I I encourage my colleagues who are not going to support Kevin McCarthy. It's in the best interest of the Congress and the country uh, for them to come out publicly to uh, illustrate or demonstrate that he's not going to be speaker. And he's not going to be speaker. He doesn't have the votes to get to 218. He's not going to get to 218. The number of public hard no votes is going to just continue to increase. One of these private no votes on McCarthy is not coming up publicly to say so. Yeah, my position is pretty clear on this, is that uh, no one in this town has 218. And, and the whole point here is to have a conversation now. I'm not talking about how I'm going to vote or not vote. What I'm talking about is my constituents sent me here to end the status quo. Now, we have learned that some of McCarthy's detractors have reached out to potential challengers to McCarthy, including asking the number two Republican, Steve Scalise, as well as Jim Jordan, who's expected to be the House Judiciary Committee chairman, and Tom Emmer, who's expected to be the Republican whip, all to challenge McCarthy. So far, they have all declined, saying they plan to support McCarthy for the Speaker's race. Now, the question will change, though. If McCarthy changes his mind, he drops out, he doesn't get to 218 votes. So just a lot of uncertainty at this point, Jake. All right. And Manu, you, you also caught up on the other side of Capitol Hill uh, with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. He's a more conservative Democrat, ahead of the Georgia runoff. What did he have to tell you about the prospect of and the importance of winning another Senate seat for the Democrats? Well, he said he is looking forward to having another Democratic vo- vote in the Senate, assuming Rafael Orkana wins that very tight race, because that would change the dynamics. He would not have nearly as much influence and pressure. And he says he would be happy with that. Listen. What we know has been like the last two years, uh, you know, it is whatever the people I I, I uh, it's not an enviable position to be into, and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. 
Now, of course, Manchin has wielded enormous clout over the last two years because Democrats have tried to pursue two major pieces of legislation along strict party lines. Manchin balked, ultimately supported those plans and had his imprints all over all of that. Jake, a lot of things will change next year, though. Democrats will have that Senate, Republicans will have the House, and not much legislating will be done. And we'll see if Joe Manchin decides to run for re-election. He has not decided yet. That's right. There's already a, a Republican uh, House member who's gonna, who said he's going to run against him. Uh, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. That Georgia runoff, uh, in the end of it is Tuesday. And Tuesday night, we're going to have special coverage right here on CNN starting at 4 p.m. Eastern all the way through when we have a winner. Coming up next on The Lead, the disturbing find inside blood-soaked packages sent to embassies across Europe. Stay with us. In the world lead, heightened alert after a series of disturbing deliveries to embassies in Europe. First, it was letter bombs sent to several diplomatic offices, including the U.S. embassy in Madrid, Spain, and the Ukrainian embassy there. And now the Ukrainian government says someone has sent bloody packages to six other Ukrainian embassies across Europe, in Hungary, the Netherlands, Poland, Croatia, Italy, and Austria. Sinan Sam Kiley is in Ukraine. And Sam, these are, these are disturbing to say the least, but what do we know about these packages and who might have been behind sending them? Well, according to an interview conducted by my colleague Matthew Chance with uh, Mr. Kaleba, the foreign minister of Ukraine, the number of uh, Ukrainian embassies and missions may actually be even higher than that, Jake, if that's conceivable, in this weird campaign, and that's his word, uh, for, uh, of sending packages, envelopes with bloody animal parts, animal eyes uh, predominantly, have been sent to a number of diplomatic missions. They believe from within uh, Europe to uh, Ukrainian diplomatic missions and consulates right across Europe. And this, as you rightly point out, follows a wave of much more sinister letter bombs that mercifully only injured one uh, Ukrainian or rather an official working in Ukraine in a Ukrainian embassy in Spain. But uh, this they believe in, in Ukraine. They're pointing the finger inevitably at either Russia or supporters of Russia because there's no other logical explanation in the context of this very bitter and bloody ongoing war. From the Ukrainian perspective, they're talking, it, talking about it weird and saying it just demonstrates Russia's inability to galvanize any kind of diplomatic support. Jake? And separately, Sam, the, the military where you are in Ukraine says the discovery of a dummy missile um, might <clears throat> reveal a new tactic in Putin's war against Ukraine. What, tell us about that. Well, this is a cruise missile that is uh, normally mounted with a nuclear warhead. It goes. So in other words, it's a Cold War era piece of equipment, but nonetheless, state of the art back then and no doubt updated. So it's still a precision guided missile, but it had been sent into Ukrainian airspace, and it's not the only one that has been recorded uh, without any kind of warhead. So it's just got the kinetic energy, which is substantial in a missile, and any remaining uh, fuel that, that could ignite. So it's still a dangerous piece of equipment, but from the Ukrainian perspective, it represents, first of all, a sign that the uh, Russians are trying to soak up the air defenses, waste missiles on uh, incoming missiles, such as this, uh, you know, anti-missile missile systems that are very short supply here in Ukraine. They also point out that the serial number on the missile was scratched out. They suspect it may even have come from old Ukrainian stocks from the days when they gave up their nuclear deterrent in return for defense guarantees that weren't met by the international community, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley in Ukraine, thank you so much.
Also in our world lead today, a disturbing report from a Norway-based human rights organization claiming that Iranian security forces shot and killed a man who was celebrating the United States' victory over Iran in the World Cup soccer match. As CNN's Jamana Karadze reports for us now, this all comes amid Iran's brutal crackdown nationwide on all anti-government protesters. Protests turned into scenes of joy and jubilation across Iran this week. Iranians were out celebrating their country's defeat at the World Cup. Surreal, but for many, after touting its team, it was the repressive regime that was defeated. No longer could it claim a victory while violently suppressing its own people. Mehran Samak was out on the streets of his city of Bandar Anzali in his car honking the horn in celebration when he was shot in the head. Activists in a human rights monitor tell CNN it was regime forces that killed the 27-year-old. Authorities deny killing Samak. They're investigating his, quote, suspicious death. They say several suspects have been arrested. Investigations by the Iranian government into the deaths of young protesters since September lack credibility and impartiality, according to the UN. We're not allowed to report from inside Iran. Those who speak to us face jail, or worse making it hard for us to tell the stories of victims and those left to mourn. Samak's Instagram post, just a little snapshot of a life ended too soon. An athletic young man who enjoyed life, being with his friends and water sports. Growing up, he played soccer with Saeed Ezatullahi, now a midfielder in the national team, who shared this photo. Mourning his childhood friend, he wrote, I wish we could always stay at the same age without any concerns, without hate, without jealousy, without fighting to put each other down. After another bitter night last night and with the news of your death, my heart is even more on fire. At Samak's burial, mourners chant, death to the dictator, Khamenei must go. Every life lost brings more heartache, more anger, more defiance and determination of a people risking it all in this bloody battle for freedom. And, Jake, more than 400 people have been killed in this crackdown since September, including uh, at least 60 children. More than 14,000 people have been arrested, and at least six protesters have been sentenced to death in what rights groups say are sham trials. Many others facing charges that carry the death penalty in the Islamic Republic. But I can tell you this isn't stopping the Iranian people. There are plans for nationwide strikes and protests next week, Jake. All right, Jamana Karacha, with the latest on that horrible, horrible story in Iran. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, President Biden's meeting moments ago with Prince William and his big plans ahead for tonight. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead, a brief yet notable meeting in Boston today. After President Biden arrived, his first meeting was with the Prince of Wales, Prince William. Kensington Palace, as the two shared memories of the late Queen Elizabeth II and discussed the earth shot Climate Prize, the prince is awarding today. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is also in Boston, Mass. She's traveling with President Biden. We should note, Priscilla is the newest member of CNN's White House team. Priscilla, great to see you. So it's been a packed week for President Biden, a state dinner, a Boston trip, and four days until the Georgia Senate runoff. What are Biden's plans for boosting Democratic candidate Raphael Warnock? Well, Jake, he is doing what he did during the midterms, which is employing a strategy of shoring up support 
from a distance. So while here in Boston, he attended a phone bank and he will also be attending a key Democratic fundraiser this evening for Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock. He nodded to that event earlier today at the White House. Take a listen. I'm going to Georgia today to help Senator Warren, not to Georgia. I'm going to help Senator Warren because I'm doing a major fundraiser up in Boston today for, for, for the, uh, our next and continued Senate candidate, Senator. Now, since the midterm election and leading up to Tuesday's runoff, both parties have had to face the reality that their party leaders are not necessarily popular. That's true for President Biden and former President Donald Trump. And so Biden is trying to bring in that support from here, from Boston. The White House also saying that it is administration policies that speak to voters. Now, it is at stake here the padded majority in the Senate with that 51st seat. They would be able to have more control in the committee and release Vice President Harris from that tie breaking vote. And that is what Biden was underscoring just moments ago in remarks to the phone bank where he said any one senator can change the party. And he made it very clear that they need that 51st vote. Jake. All right. Priscilla Alvarez traveling with President Biden in Boston. Thanks for joining us. And uh, to the world lead now, Israel. Just one month after longtime former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was able to cobble together enough support to soon reclaim power Today, even ardent supporters of Israel are publicly worrying that the alliance Netanyahu is forging with some on the far right will lead to unacceptable changes to Israel's government and society, including two prominent American backers of Israel and its government, Alan Dershowitz and Abraham Foxman. Foxman telling the Jerusalem Post, quote, I never thought that I would reach that point where I would say that my support of Israel is conditional. Let's get right to Hadass Gold, our reporter in Jerusalem. Hadass, this is very rare criticism from Dershowitz and Foxman. Yeah, Jake Foxman is the former head of the Anti-Defamation League, and he once said nothing could separate him from his support for Israel. But it seems as though this incoming government is going to be testing that commitment. Gives you a sense of fears that this could be the most far-right government in Israeli history, uh, with the likes of Itamar Ben-Gvir as ministers. Now, there are several main concerns amongst Israel allies about what this new government can do, and they, they sort of fall into several main categories. One is the policy in the occupied Palestinian territories. Now, Itamar Ben-Gvir has already been announced as the national security minister, but this is somebody who was once convicted of anti-Arab racism and was barred from the mandatory military draft, he says, because of his political views. There are also concerns about desired changes from this incoming government to the judiciary. Essentially, they want to allow the Israeli parliament to override Supreme Court decisions with a simple majority. This is something Dershowitz has called a terrible, terrible mistake if it happens. There are concerns about LGBTQ rights, and there are also concerns that some of the Orthodox parties, which essentially they are all Orthodox parties except for Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party, want to essentially make Israel a more religious country, including by changing the law of return, including changing who is essentially considered Jewish enough to immigrate to Israel. And there are concerns that they want to, Orthodox parties want to make this a stricter requirement. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu has responded to some of these concerns in a recent podcast interview with Barry Weiss. I want to read that to you. He said, I've often heard these doom project projections, but none of them have materialized. 
I maintained Israel's democratic nature. I maintained Israel's traditions. These, this Israel is not going to be governed by Talmudic law. We're not going to ban LGBT forums. As you know, my view on that is sharply different. To put it mildly, we're going to remain a country of laws. But Jake, just a few hours after that interview was published, it became public that Benjamin Netanyahu had appointed the head of the proudly homophobic Noam party to be a minister in the Ministry of Education. This has led to widespread outrage in Israel, including the Tel Aviv mayor warning that Israel is heading towards becoming a fascist theocracy. Jake. All right. Hadass Gold in Jerusalem. Thank you so much for that report. <laughs> Coming up, what police in Idaho are now saying about a six-person who once lived in the Idaho house where those four college students were killed. Stay with us. In our national lead, police now say a sixth person had lived in the house where those four University of Idaho students were found stabbed to death. Previously, they had said that there were only five people who lived in the house. It has been nearly three weeks since the students were killed. Still, no suspect has been found. CNN's Veronica Miracle is, as always, live from Moscow, Idaho for us. And Veronica... What more do we know about this six individual? Well, Jake, we've just gotten confirmation from detectives that they have spoken to this individual who lived here and was on the lease at this house. That sixth person, according to detectives, moved out prior to the start of the school year. They say this person was not home at the time of the attacks, and they are saying this person did not have any involvement in those murders. So now we know that those two surviving roommates, as well as this sixth person on the lease, have been cleared in this case. Jake. Where does the investigation stand, though? Yeah, it's, it's definitely tough. The latest from police is that there is still no suspect, no murder weapon, and no motive. They continue to work around the clock. They have been telling me that there's been progress made behind the scenes. It's just not information that, that they can share with the public as it could compromise the investigation. I do think it's important to reiterate that pretty much all of the Moscow Police Department is working on this, in addition to a team from the FBI, as well as a lot of people from the Idaho State Police. But what's really tough for this community is that they're just not getting answers. And as each day passes, it's getting harder and harder for people to be comfortable with this. Uh, it's very tense around here. As far as the University of Idaho, school actually gets out at the end of next week for the rest of the semester. So students will go home and they won't come back until mid-January. I asked the university what they plan on doing in terms of security. And they say they're just going to have to revisit it next year as students get back. They're hoping to see how this investigation unfolds and just take it step by step. Jake. All right. Veronica Miracle in Moscow, Idaho for us. Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate it. To Hawaii now. CNN's on the ground near where the world's largest active volcano is still erupting. The lava flow from the Mauna Loa on the Big Island has slowed in the past day, but the threat of the lava reaching a main highway, that remains. And CNN's David Culver is reporting for us on preparations for that possibly happening and how onlookers are trying to catch a glimpse of Earth's fury. The nighttime glow of Mauna Loa's oozing lava... Well, you just have to pull over to properly admire it. It's basically the middle of the night, and you guys are out here. Why? Well, I mean, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be able to experience this. And we decided to come early in the morning so we didn't have to sit in the traffic. Having hopped from Oahu to here, the Big Island, this family, three generations, came to respectfully honor the Hawaiian eruptions. It's all beautiful to us, and so we pay huge reverence to this. It's very culturally significant for us as well. So 
it's a big deal. A sight made even more alluring with a side of sunrise, which brought the crowds to Old Saddle Road. Officials turning this stretch into a one-way street, allowing passersby the chance to stop and let the views seep in. And that keeps drivers from pulling over and stopping on this, what is one of the main highways connecting one part of the island to the other. USGS and state officials warned the lava flow, while slowed in recent days, is inching closer to cutting off this highway. It's within three miles now. The other worry, not here on the ground, but up in the air. What looked like plumes of smoke? Experts say those are acid gases. Officials monitoring the levels, warning it could become toxic for residents and visitors of the Big Island. Mauna Loa is the second of the Big Island's five volcanoes currently erupting. Kilauea still rumbling after destroying more than 600 homes here in 2018. This is very significant. Like my wife, we made leaves out on Oahu and we brought them over here and we, we gave it as an offering, you know, just you come as respect. But many Hawaiians see the potential path of destruction as simultaneous creation surfacing from this, the world's largest active volcano. And Jake, to be here in person, it is really striking. I mean, what you're looking at up there, you would think that's the summit. That's actually one of the fissures, and so it happens to be the most active one. That's why there's lava that's actually coming out of it, and that's the one that's reaching a bit closer to just behind the camera here, which is that main highway we were talking about. It's about 2.7 miles away right now, getting inch by inch a little bit closer. That's what's making folks so nervous. But you can see behind me, that's where most of the activity right now is with this volcano. Right, and it's moving at about a mile per hour. Uh, David Culver in Hawaii, so I know you can get out safely. Uh, let me let me let me ask you one other question, though, David. Um, the, there was a, another volcano on that island that erupted in 2018. Are there still lasting effects from that? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it's it Kilauea, and it, it's still erupting actually, and that makes this rather rare as well. You've got two on one island. There's five volcanoes here altogether that are erupting at the same time, and there is some lingering trauma, and that's why folks were watching this one so closely, making sure that if it was going to go one direction over the other it could be incredibly destructive. Right now, as locals have told me, it's the best-case scenario, but they know that can change really overnight, Jake. All right, David. David Culver in Hawaii, thank you so much. Coming up, that cruise ship passenger who somehow ended up overboard and was all alone for hours in what he describes as shark-infested waters, what he recalls about the ordeal. That's coming up. Welcome to the lead up, Jake Tapper. This hour, a look at one life-changing statewide programming program providing free childcare for families struggling to make ends meet. Could other states follow New Mexico's lead? Plus, Kanye West, also known as Ye, has been spewing his anti-Semitic insanity for months now. What did he finally say that made Elon Musk kick him off Twitter in this political environment where anti-Semitism is increasingly becoming mainstream? And leading this hour, Ukrainian embassies and consulates around Europe on heightened alert after being targeted with suspicious packages that include blood-soaked envelopes holding the eyeballs of animals. Ukrainian embassies in Hungary, the Netherlands, Poland, Croatia, Italy, and Austria, plus consulates in Naples and Krakow received these envelopes. This comes just days after a letter bomb sent to the embassy in Madrid exploded, injuring a Ukrainian employee. Ukraine's foreign minister says he believes this is a well-planned campaign of terror and intimidation, acts of terrorism coming at a time when Russia is lashing out and trying to use winter as a weapon of war by targeting Ukraine's power grid 
after Ukraine reclaimed the key city of Kherson. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us in Ukraine's capital of Kyiv right now. And Matthew, you sat down for an exclusive interview with Ukraine's foreign minister. That's right. Dmitry Kaleba is his name. And we spoke about a whole range of issues from uh, the offer, the suggestion by President Biden yesterday that he would consider speaking to President Putin of Russia to bring an end to the war, uh, to the need in Ukraine desperately uh, for missile defences, particularly the Patriot missile defence system. But first of all, we started talking about that sort of very strange, very disturbing series of letters uh, that have been received by Ukrainian embassies across Europe. The Foreign Minister, Dmitry Kaleba, will explain. Well, it started with an explosion at the embassy of Ukraine in Spain. But what followed was this explosion was more weird, and I would even say sick, because we started receiving letters with eyes, animal eyes, cut off. Animal eyes. Animal eyes, yes. In some cases, in one case, it's most probably an eye of a cow uh, and an eye of a pig in another case. Let me ask you, who do you suspect, who does Ukraine suspect of being behind this? Well, um, of course, I feel tempted to say, to name Russia straight away, uh, because first of all, you have to answer the question, who benefits from that? And uh, it's definitely this campaign is aimed at uh, sowing fear and terrorizing Ukrainian diplomats. Your infrastructure of the country has been attacked repeatedly by Russian missiles. Um, You've got an anti-aircraft system that is straining to um, overcome those incoming attacks. How concerned are you that this country will be unable to survive the winter unless Patriot missile systems from the United States are deployed to this country? I'm not concerned at all. We will survive. I do not have any single doubt that we will get through this winter. The question is what will be the price of getting through this winter. And definitely having Patriots, uh, having other advanced air defense systems, uh, having them delivered in Ukraine within weeks, not months, will dramatically lower the price and will allow us to defend our cities and our critical energy infrastructure. Are you concerned that the approval for those Patriots has not been given yet? Uh, well, uh, Patriots became a symbol. The, you know, this is a US technology. But now time has come to make decisions. So we are having this discussion. And yes, I will not conceal that it would be a huge help. It would really help us to defend the country and to minimize the price we are paying for uh, surviving during the winter. You heard President Biden yesterday in a press conference with the, with the French leader suggesting that he would be prepared to sit down and speak with President Putin of, of Russia to try and find a negotiated end uh, to this conflict. How did that make you feel as a Ukrainian that the American president was suggesting that he would be open to that conversation? Well, I think you missed one point from President Biden's remark because he said that this can only happen if Putin is ready to withdraw from Ukraine. And this is a very important detail, because if uh, any leader of the world is ready just to sit down with Putin and talk, 
behind our back, that is a problem. But if the condition for the conversation is the withdrawal of Russian army from Ukraine and restoration uh, of our territor territorial integrity, we are fine with that. Do you believe there is any possibility, finally, this final question, do you believe there is any possibility at this stage, any sign of the green shoots of a peace process? Is there anything that gives you hope on that front? Mm, no, as we are anticipating another massive missile attack by Russia. Uh, and the goal of this attack is to kind of bring total destruction to our energy system. I don't think countries behave like this if they want, genuinely want peace. And as long as Putin prefers war, we will prefer to fight and defeat him on the battleground. Well, Jake, as the country braces itself for that potential further missile uh, strikes that the foreign minister was talking to me about then, it's been revealed by the defence ministry that some of the missiles that Russia is firing at the country are actually dummy missiles. What that means is they're cruise missiles that are capable of carrying nuclear warheads, but the warheads have been removed and just the missiles with nothing on the front of them, no explosives at all, are being fired partly uh, to confuse and to exhaust the missile defence systems in the country. Um, uh, you know, and, and so you know, that's something that's uh, another thing that the Ukrainians are having to contend with, Jake. All right, Matthew Chance, thank you so much. Fascinating interview. Now to Russia. Clear signs that Putin's economy is struggling under the squeeze of sanctions from the West, as the West hopes economic pain will ultimately push Putin and push Russians to question their leader's so-called special military operation in Ukraine. CNN's Fred Plekin is in Moscow right now, where the typically bright holiday season is noticeably dimmer this year. As Moscow lights up for the holiday season, the festive mood is dampened by a dose of melancholy. As there seems no end in sight to what the Kremlin calls its special military operation in Ukraine. I think the operation is not going too well, to put it mildly, because there are many losses on our side. I don't know what the goal of the operation is, but it's not reaching it. After Russian forces were forced to retreat from large parts of northeastern and southern Ukraine, many here don't even want to talk about what's happening on the battlefield. <laughs> to this question, I don't know what to say. This is a provocative question. I don't want to answer it. Even after the Kremlin ordered a partial mobilization, drafting around 300,000 Russians between September and early November, gains have been hard to come by for Moscow's forces in Ukraine. Still, many Russians say they trust their leadership's decision-making. As far as the military operation goes, I can only say one thing, that it is underway, and that I should not comment on it. Because we all support our president of the Russian Federation. And Russian President Vladimir Putin is asking for more support and patience, promising things will turn around. We, as all of you here rightfully said, we must achieve our goals and we will achieve them in the end. But increasing numbers of boarded-up shops show Russia's economy is running out of steam as sanctions bite and some goods are becoming scarce. 
Of course, many things we've grown used to buying have disappeared, but life goes on. We have to adjust somehow. Economic expert Sergei Javoronkov tells me he fears the economic woes could lead to wider discontent. It is a known effect. A short victorious war may provoke enthusiasm. But if the war lasts endlessly and does not lead to the desired outcome, comes disappointment. For now, the lights remain bright in Moscow, even as the dark clouds of economic uncertainty loom over the Russian capital. And you know, Jake, that's one of the things that people tell us gets to them the most. It's that uncertainty. What's going to be in a month, in two months, or in three months? Are people still going to have a job? And certainly a lot of them say that right now, as far as the economy is concerned, they really don't see a light at the end of the tunnel because they believe these sanctions are going to stay in place for a very long time. Now, Vladimir Putin has said he believes that the economy here will continue to stabilize. But of course, he also says that Russia's combat operations in Ukraine are going to continue until he's achieved all his goals. Jake. All right, Fred Pleitkin in Moscow, thank you so much for that report. Former President Barack Obama is on the campaign trail in Georgia for the Senate runoff, and uh, he's got jokes. Then he survived treading water for 20 hours after falling off a cruise ship, and now he's sharing his story. When it started going, getting back towards nighttime again, the water started getting colder. At that time, I thought, you know, how much longer am I going to have to be out here? In our politics lead, in just four days, the last election of the 2022 cycle comes to a close. This is the runoff between incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger and football star Herschel Walker, both of whom are rallying supporters today. CNN's Diane Gallagher is live in an Atlanta polling location. Diane, this is the last day for early voting. Tell us what you're seeing. I think you can see for yourself here, there's long lines, and it kind of looks like this across the state of Georgia right now. I've talked to people who've waited two, even three hours for this final day to get their votes cast in this runoff election between the incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker. Now, as of Thursday, just under uh, 1.5 million Georgians had already cast their ballots, but uh, Gabriel Sterling, the chief chief, uh, operating officer of the Secretary of State's office here, Uh, tweeted that right now they're on pace to break that single daily vote record for an early voting, which was actually set earlier this week. Now, I do want to caution that even though they're setting daily records, they're actually still running behind in overall votes from the 2021 runoff, likely due to the compressed four-week runoff period in just five days of mandatory voting. But we are seeing interesting numbers here. A new CNN poll that just came out today shows the race is still extremely tight, with Senator Warnock leading Herschel Walker 52 to 48 percent, but it's still within the margin of error there. So again, a very tight race. And look, looking at new information we have from Catalyst here, those voters who are coming right now, 40 percent of black voters who voted in November have already returned to the polls. That's greater than the share of white voters who have returned to the polls already. That's again through Thursday. That's just 30 percent. In talking to Democrats, they say they're heartened by seeing uh, these lines, even though they wish people were not waiting in these long lines. But Republicans say they believe that Election Day on Tuesday, Jake, is going to be when their base turns out to vote for Walker. All right, Diane Gallagher uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, thank you so much. And be sure to join us uh, on Tuesday for Election Night in America. That's the Georgia Senate 
runoff. Our coverage will begin at 4 p.m. Eastern and we'll run until we have a winner. Uh, let's discuss. Uh, Nia, let me start with you. So former President Barack Obama uh, has been in Georgia, even if Joe Biden, President Biden, has not been right. asked to join. Neither has former President Trump. Um, and Obama took in his remarks some aim at Walker for some bizarre comments that Walker made recently about vampires and werewolves that I can't really explain, but here's Obama making light of it. Since the last time I was here, Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. In case you're wondering, by the way, Mr. Walker decided he wanted to be a werewolf. Which is great. As far as I'm concerned, he can be anything he wants to be. Except for a United States senator. Uh, he went on to say that, uh, you know, the, the, the question about whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf is the kind of great debate you have when you're seven years old. Yeah. Um, is that effective, do you think? Well, listen, it actually dovetails pretty nicely with some ads that are running uh, on the air in Georgia showing focus group voters listening to uh gibberish, essentially, from Herschel Walker uh, and wondering about his qualifications, wondering about what he's talking about. It's a fairly effective ad. So I think this is just doubling down on some of the concerns that voters have about Herschel Walker. If you look at the data, Republicans are pretty much in lockstep behind him. Uh, His problem is with independent voters, right? Mm. Uh, In our poll, uh, Warnock is getting 61% of independent voters to Walker's 36%. That is not where you want to be going into Tuesday. So I think that's where, where you have Obama really highlighting what are, what's troubling for voters anyway when they look at Herschel Walker. And, and Scott, in that same poll, among uh, it's 50, let's put it up if we can, 52 percent support Warnock, 48 uh, percent Walker. That is within the margin of error, uh, although it does suggest a, a lead for, for Warnock. Among black voters, where Republicans hoped Herschel Walker mm-hmm. would help them make some gains, um, Warnock leads 96% to Herschel Walker's 3%. Do you think this race has slipped away? Uh, I think uh, Herschel has an uphill battle. I mean, he obviously got fewer votes on Election Day. And the point you made about independent voters, obviously this was the great story of the midterm overall for Republicans. Independent voters siding with Democrats despite their misgivings about Biden and his policies. That probably hasn't changed over the last four weeks. How you would beat that is if you could somehow dramatically enhance Republican turnout, which is why it's good that Governor Brian Kemp is out uh, with his shoulder to the wheel for Walker, and he's loaned his operation to the turnout effort there for Republicans. Uh, So that's what you have to hope for. This independent number, to me, is the most troubling issue for the party right now overall, in that you've got a Democratic Party that's, you know, not all that popular. Why can't you attract people who are unhappy with them? And, you know, this playing out again in Georgia. And also just to state the obvious, I mean, campaigns and candidates matter. Raphael Warnock has run a pretty perfect campaign, uh, stayed on message, uh, stayed as moderate as he can, even though he's very progressive. He's, his message has been moderate. And Herschel Walker's candidacy has been problematic, shall we say. <laughs> yes, that's right. And that's what Democrats are trying to focus on. Like, to your point, they really are trying to drive home, look at the differences. They couldn't be starker. And To your point about the midterms, I mean, Democrats are feeling pretty good after their own surprise. They thought that they were going to do so much worse, not just in the Senate, but definitely on the House side. They thought they were going to get more or less obliterated there. So the fact that 
I've been talking to a number of House Democrats in particular. They say, you know, a lot of these attack ads that Republicans have been really launching of saying, oh, my gosh, this Democrat's just like Nancy Pelosi and just like Joe Biden. There is an incumbency factor that helps that these Mm. people who have been there and, you know, talk to a lot of their constituents, constituents are able to say, all right, I, I, I know this person is very progressive or liberal, but they're not just like, you know, the far right candidate or the far left candidate. Um, and I, I, that's, I think, something that even Republicans are talking about right now. Who are we and how can we attract that middle, to your point? I was talking to a Republican last night. He, he said something very short, very profound. His view on the midterm was voters said, we just want normal people of good character. Yeah. That's it. That was the message. That was the whole message. And, you know, uh, and that we'll see if the party can learn this lesson, you know, after this race and going into the next cycle. But short sentence, but... Pretty profound, I think. Well, I think one of the problems, one of the obvious problems has been uh, Donald Trump uh, has picked uh, a number of candidates uh, and chased out people uh, like Jeff Duncan, the outgoing lieutenant governor. Um, He, I think, would have been a strong statewide candidate, Republican candidate, but he basically, he's now a CNN contributor. (laughs) And, and, uh, and, And Trump picked Herschel Walker, just like he picked Blake Masters and Dr. Oz and Doug Mastriano, et cetera, et cetera. And these are, these are candidates who have fealty to Donald Trump, but they're not winners. No, and neither is Donald Trump. He's lost his re-election bid as well. I think the one thing on Georgia is they picked Herschel Walker thinking that black folks would vote for Herschel Walker because he was black, but black voters are smarter than that, and they vote for candidates that actually know how to have comprehensive sentences, understand policy, and don't have some of the compromising issues that Herschel Walker's campaign has really surfaced about him. And also maybe somebody who actually has a residency in the state that they're running in. Um, And I think Donald Trump, you know, he isn't going into Georgia because he doesn't have that special effect in that state. He lost the state in 2020. Um, And he is a big problem for your party. He is a big problem for America. And I think Warnock will pull this out. Biden's not going to Georgia either, to be fair. But Obama is there. But Obama is there. So let's talk about Georgia for a second. Because Georgia in the this I I don't want people to think this is inside baseball, but this is about the Democrats nominating mm-hmm. schedule. Georgia's going to be moving up in the Democratic presidential primary. The DNC this afternoon has approved President Biden's proposal to drastically reshape the calendar. South Carolina will be first. Uh, then follow, that will be followed by Nevada and New Hampshire, then Georgia, then Michigan. I, that's if Iowa goes along with it. And, you know, if I know Iowans... They're not going to go yeah. along with it. Listen, but. I'm from South Carolina. South Carolina isn't first in a lot of uh, lists. And it looks like, you know, I was texting a Democrat about this. And I said, you know, South Carolina is going to be first. And they texted back job security, meaning for Joe Biden, you know, this is good for him. He uh, Obviously, South Carolina is, is the state uh, that he was able to pull it out. He ran the table in the other southern states as well. I think it's also good for Kamala Harris. Should she want to run in 2028 or beyond or Warnock, if he wants to run in in, uh, 2028 or beyond, it, I think, sends the signal to Democratic presidential hopefuls that they have to be very strong among African-American voters, which are the the base of the Democratic Party. It is. It's I mean, it's it's a it's a reward to South Carolina from the president who is only president because he won in South Carolina. Absolutely. I mean, the person who's winning here is the kingmaker himself, Jim Clyburn, who helped basically say, you know what, I'm delivering South Carolina for you, Joe Biden. And at the time, I was embedded on his campaign. And I mean, the moment you hit South Carolina, it was just completely different. Even Nevada as well. And the reason why at the time when a lot of people were saying, oh, my gosh, Biden's going down, even the campaign was saying, just wait until we get to places Mm. where 
you know, there is more diversity. And that's really what this is about. And it was true when he would go, very rarely did he ever go outside of Iowa and New Hampshire. But when he did, the crowds were bigger. They were younger. They looked different than, and Democrats are making this point. Iowa, New Hampshire, smaller group of people. They're whiter and they're older. They but, don't decide. But this debate hasn't just started. This has been something that has been oh, going so, on mm, for a very long yep. time because it talks about representation. The Democratic Party is about the big coalition. And if you start in two states to try and pick the leader of your party that are predominantly white and don't really represent the diversity of the country, it it, it doesn't really fare well. Now, I will say... I don't know if Obama becomes the nominee if right. we start in uh, in South, South Carolina, Carolina because exactly. of mm. some of the institutions of the Clintons. But this is what I think the Democratic Party will you'll see because we now have this changing of the guard with like House leadership, right? And Jim Clyburn is an institution in our party. Can candidates show up in a state like South Carolina? And break out of some of this long-term institutions in some of these states like a Michigan or a South Carolina. I will, I'll, I will say this, and quickly if you could. I mean, I understand all the reasons for it, but like Iowa allows an individual to go because it's smaller mm. and, and, uh, and really campaign uh, the way that Obama did. You don't need to have the richest campaign. That's going to change now. Yeah, um, you've had individuals go to Iowa and make big splashes. You've also had uh, people go to Iowa and make big splashes and then totally flame out. <laughs> right. And so, but, but let's just all remember, the reason they're falling down the list here is because of the abject embarrassment they caused in the primary last time around. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right. I mean, it was, it was really yeah. crazy what happened there. And, you know, we got to do better than that. All right. Thanks to one and all. Have a great week. And everything is on the line for the men's soccer team as it prepares to play the Netherlands in the knockout round. Will the U.S. star player be back on the field? Stick around. In our sports lead now, can the U.S. men's national soccer team continue its World Cup run? Well, we're going to find out tomorrow when the team takes on the Netherlands in the first knockout match of the tournament in Doha, Qatar. Joining us now to discuss whether the U.S. can pull it off is ESPN sports commentator Patrick McEnroe. Patrick, great to see you. The Netherlands, for viewers who are not familiar with World Cup soccer, the Netherlands is considered one of the top teams in the world But as the head coach of the U.S. men's national team put it today, the knockout stage must be played strategically. Explain to us what that means. Well, I think that, uh, you know, as you said, the Netherlands has a great history. They've been to three World Cup finals, but they've never won one. And if you said to me, Jake, at the beginning of the tournament, who's the stronger team, England or the Netherlands? I would have said England. And the U.S. outplayed them. It was a draw. But the U.S. team, you know, for many years, Jake, they had a lot of will in their game. You know, we've been this far before in the World Cup. We've actually been even one round further to the quarterfinals years ago. But now when I watch this team, and I'm no soccer expert, but I'm a huge fan of the game, having traveled the world playing tennis, I see that they have not only the will, but they have tremendous skill, soccer skill. Even the coach from Iran, who's Portuguese, said this U.S. team has gone from being a soccer team to being a football team, meaning they know how to play the game. So I think They go in against the Netherlands definitely as the underdog. And the Netherlands, despite winning their group, Jake, I don't think they look that great. They didn't look dominant. This is a team that I think is ripe for an upset. And I think this young U.S. team, one of the youngest teams in the tournament, is ready to do that. The question is, Christian Pulisic, who's our star player who scored the goal against Iran, sacrificed his body in doing so. 
How much will he be able to give the U.S. team tomorrow? They say he's ready to go. He's going to play. But he got a really bad hit there in the pelvic area. My suspicion, Jake, is that he'll be able to play maybe half the game. Is that enough to get a goal for the U.S.? And then can we hang on if we do get the lead? Because I don't think we can last as long as this Dutch team, who has a lot of experience, some great young players themselves, and much more experience in these big-time matches. So it sounds like you're saying you don't think the team can rely on Pulisic, like that, that maybe he can play, maybe he can't. They shouldn't count on it. Well, I think, I think they're counting on him to come out, give them some, uh, an emotional burst of energy, and hopefully he's good enough, as I said, to play a half that the pain, you know, look, he's going to take some legal painkillers, Jake. Trust me when I tell you this before the game, because it's just a, a, you know, he got hit real hard in the pelvic area. So if he can give you 45, maybe 60 minutes, and here's who I think could be the key guy, Jake, Gio Reyna, who's 20 years of age, who's only played nine minutes in this tournament. And before this tournament started, this World Cup event, he was rated the third best under 23-year-old player in the world, okay, coming into this World Cup. It's a little peculiar why he hasn't played that much. Of course, we have a great midfield. We have great players in the midfield. We don't have that great striker that some of the big countries has that have. But maybe it's Gio Reyna gets his opportunity because of the Pulisic injury, and who knows? Maybe he's the guy. I'm telling you right now, Jake, I'm feeling it. You see I've got the trophies behind me to try to inspire the team. 1-0 for the U.S. We move on. And wouldn't you love to see the U.S. against Argentina in the quarterfinals and Lionel Messi? That would be something. All right, from your lips to God's ears, Patrick McEnroe, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. One question that seems to come up every time there's a World Cup is, is the American public finally, truly interested in soccer? There's an old saying, soccer is the sport of the future in America and always will be. Here to break down the data for us and how the public feels about this all is CNN's Harry Anton. Harry, what have you found? Yeah, I mean, look, let's take a look at the ratings, right? The highest rated men's World Cup soccer matches. We have a new number one. The USA versus England earlier this year got 15.5 million. That beat the all-time record, at least in the United States broadcast in English, which was 14.5 million back all the way back in 1994. It's not so surprising to me that we, in fact, saw higher ratings. Why? Because take a look at this long-term trend. Favorite sport to watch, soccer. 2022, it's 8%. Now, that might not seem like a large figure, but look where it was back in 1992. It was just 1%, and back 32 years before that, it was 0%. So support for soccer, people liking to watch the sport, is clearly going up in America. You always like the trends as a a poll guy. So you also notice that when it comes to the fans of tomorrow, a lot more young people are into soccer than old folks such as myself, uh, especially compared to America's favorite sport. Yeah, sport, right? that's exactly right. So let's look at high school soccer participation rates, right? So let's go back to 1981 to 1982. It was about 213,000. Go to 2001 to 2002, 635,000. Now look at the latest year. Look at that. We're all the way up to 813,000. That's a nearly quadruple where we were just 40 years ago. And take a look at here. This sort of high school football versus soccer. This is how many more high school players are there in football than soccer. Back in 1981 to 82, there were 715,000 more football players than soccer players. It dropped to 421,000 20 years ago. Then look in the last year. Look at that. Yes, football still has the edge, 
but it's just 217,000. So the edge that football has has been shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. Maybe soon enough, soccer might actually overtake it. Yeah, and I can think of as a parent, uh, one of the reasons why I bet it is, which is I bet a lot of parents are discouraging their kids from playing football. Is that right? Yeah, so take a look here at this poll question. Feel comfortable letting your child play given the safety concerns. 86% of parents feel comfortable having their kids play soccer. Look at football, though. It's just a bare majority at 51%. There are a lot of parents who are not comfortable with their kids playing football, and so they're deciding, hey, maybe we should give football a chance instead. Football. All right. So thank you so much, Ariante. Good to see you. Why Kanye West's latest anti-Semitic rant is so dangerous. That's next. In our politics lead, the Twitter account for the rapper Ye, better known as Kanye West, has been suspended after he tweeted a disgusting image of the star of David with a swastika inside. The tweet follows a series of anti-Semitic ramblings from Kanye West in recent months and comes on the same day he gave an interview to far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, during which Ye expressed his love for Adolf Hitler. Let's bring in former Florida Congressman Ted Deutsch, who's now the CEO of the American Jewish Committee. Uh, Congressman, what was your reaction to Ye praising Hitler? Well, I I was as disgusted as every person should have been, Jake. We thought that Kanye hit rock bottom, at least as far as his anti-Semitism goes, when he was kicked off Twitter previously for his rants. But this this outburst, the image that he posted, praising Hitler, Nazis, expressing love for them, uh, it is dangerous And it comes at the end of a very challenging week for the Jewish community where it feels like we're being bombarded with anti-Semitism every single day. Yeah, and this this comes, of course, after former President Trump dined with both Ye and another notorious anti-Semite, Nick Fuentes at at Mar-a-Lago. And Trump has yet to condemn the views of either Ye or Fuentes. Well, that's right. And there was some reporting this week that the former president thought that this would blow over. He thought that the the former president of the United States hosting rabid anti-Semites and Holocaust deniers would somehow cease to matter. And I join with the chorus of Democrats and Republicans, including his former vice president, who have called on on Donald Trump to apologize, to condemn this. It doesn't, anti-Semitism doesn't go away. It festers and it leads to more and it empowers the kind of, uh, the kinds of vicious anti-Semites that too often uh, have taken action. We've seen that time and time again, so much so that the, the Jewish community in America, just as the Jewish community in Europe, where I am now, is, is terrified. You, you talk to the people here, Jake, and I've been meeting with the Jewish communities in France and in Greece, and they're, they've been experiencing this anti-Semitism for two decades, and they're horrified now by what they see in the United States as much as the, our own community in the United States is. This is an enormous challenge. We must come together to fight this Jew hatred. So just for uh, you're in Athens, Greece right now. Um, the uh, why is it dangerous? Uh, because uh, the, uh, the the contrary argument well, might be yeah. Kanye West is just an entertainer. 
uh, just a singer. Nick Fuentes is just yeah. whatever he is, uh, a person of no importance or influence. Um, and these are words. They're not deeds. What's your response to that? Why do you, why do you think it's dangerous? Well, I, I appreciate that because words can lead to deeds because the, it's the, the if you look at the words that have been published by uh, by killers time and again in America, the killer who went to Tree of Life Synagogue uh, expressed his his virulent anti-Semitism clearly when a social media influencer with tens of millions of followers posts this kind of horrific hate, uh, it sits out there. If it's not taken down, if he's not shut off of Twitter or social media, and it feeds a long history that has done such damage to the Jewish community. Over time, Jews have been, they've been attacked. They've been run out of countries. Uh, obvious, they've been expelled from countries. Obviously, the Holocaust in which 6 million Jews were killed is the worst example of where anti-Semitism can lead, but it often leads to violence. That's why, that's exactly why this issue is so serious. And it's not just the Jewish community. When there is anti-Semitism present, there's a bigger problem in society. That's why AJC's called for a societal response and our call to action against anti-Semitism. It's why we put out Translate Hate at, at translatehate.org so people can understand just what the words that they think aren't that powerful have led to over centuries and, in fact, millennia. All right, former congressman, now CEO of the American Jewish Congress, so Ted Deutsch, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, a look at one state's groundbreaking program providing all needy families within its borders with free child care. Stay with us. In our national lead right now, American families spend an average of $10,000 a year on child care. $10,000. But one state just eased the financial burden for some parents. New Mexico voters recently voted yes to make a program that offers free child care in that state permanent. And as CNN's Renee Marsh reports for us now, even families making a decent amount of money are eligible. Oh, thank you. Okay. Alicia Foud, a mom of three, was forced to make some tough decisions before New Mexico became the first state to offer free child care to the majority of its population this May. I learned, you know, which bills I could forego every other month to keep up with the, the financial needs of my children. Nationwide, the average cost of child care for families has outpaced the rate of inflation in 2021. Child care sucked up 30 percent of Fout's monthly income, the financial stress not lost on her eight-year-old son. He remembers struggling and mom going to food banks and going to these charity places to have assistance to pay for the bills. He was worried about how much something would cost. She found a temporary solution in a New Mexico pilot program that provides free child care. Good job. Thank you. Now wash your hands. She now has an extra $370 per month. But with the state's temporary funding for the program set to expire next June, a permanent solution came during the 2022 election, when 70 percent of voters in New Mexico, one of the poorest states that consistently ranks among the worst for child well-being, approved a constitutional amendment to fund early childhood care using a portion of the state's windfall from oil and gas production revenue, New Mexico is now the first state to guarantee early childhood care as a constitutional right. 
We're going to fully fund child care for every New Mexican. A willing governor, state lawmakers, and determined child advocates were the blueprint for providing free child care for families, making up to 400 percent of the federal poverty line. That's about $111,000 for a family of four. What New Mexico has done means that it's possible in many states. For 12 years, child advocacy groups used a wide range of tactics to get permanent funding for child care enshrined in the state's constitution. It was years worth of op-eds and blogs to raise public awareness. It was working with policymakers to educate and to have them understand just how important these early childhood years are. And then when it came down to it, it was really hundreds of thousands of contacts with voters. Fout says her son no longer worries about money and is excelling in school, and she has since gotten a job promotion with higher pay, something she said she didn't strive for before because a bigger salary meant less subsidies and higher child care costs. Well, Congress must give the final sign-off before the state of New Mexico makes changes to their state constitution. We did reach out to New Mexico Senator Martin Heinrich, and he says... He's very hopeful that this will get across the line. Uh, The hope is that this will all pass and be approved by Congress by the end of this session, Jake. Yeah. If men had babies, this would be free. (laughs) This would have been three centuries ago. All right. Renee Marsh, thank you so much. Good to see you again. And our politics lead, the chief of staff for New York Attorney General Letitia James has resigned amid allegations of sexual harassment. That's according to the New York Times. Times says that Ibrahim Khan was accused of inappropriate touching and unwanted kissing a spokesman for the New York Attorney General's office, says, quote, the Office of Attorney General has protocols in place to thoroughly investigate any allegation of misconduct. The office takes these matters with the utmost seriousness, and this situation is no different. An independent, impartial investigation was conducted, and the employee has since resigned, unquote. Khan did not immediately respond to CNN's request for comment. The New York Times reports that Khan was working for Attorney General James when her office investigated sexual harassment allegations against then-Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo, which, of course, ended with Cuomo's resignation, among other reverberations. He fell off a cruise ship, then stayed afloat for 20 hours in shark-infested waters before being rescued. Now he is sharing his story. Stay with us. Finally, maybe we should call this our faith lead. The man who fell off a cruise ship last month and spent about 20 hours in waters known to be shark-infested and was finally rescued by a passing tanker ship, told his story on ABC's Good Morning America earlier today. James Michael Grimes says he was not drunk, but he does not remember falling off the ship. I came to regain consciousness. I was in the water with no boat in sight. Remember the part about shark-infested waters? I was swimming in one direction. I looked around, and I seen it at the corner of my eye. And it came up on me really quick. And I went under, and I could see it. And it wasn't a shark, I don't believe, but it had more like a flat mouth. And it came up and bumped one of my legs, and I kicked it with the other leg. It scared me. Not was. Grimes says he is forever changed by the horrific experience. The fall didn't kill me. You know, sea creatures didn't eat me. I felt like I was meant to get out of there. Well, we're glad he got out. Be sure to tune in this Sunday to CNN State of the Union. I'm going to be talking to Democratic Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, plus incoming Republican Congressman Mike Lawler from New York. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. 
Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Alex Marquardt, who's in the Situation Room in for Wolf Blitzer. See you Sunday morning. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.